Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. We spend a lot of time talking and thinking about building up our physical strength and physical health. But just as we can develop physical strength, we can develop mental strength. We can exercise the brain like we do any other muscle, performing exercises that help us learn to regulate our thoughts, manage our emotions, and behave skillfully even in challenging circumstances. These skills are important all the time, but they might be particularly important in our relationships. So to help us learn how to develop more mental strength and build relationships that reflect it, I'm joined by psychotherapist Amy Morin. Amy is a licensed clinical social worker, best-selling author, and the host of the Mentally Stronger podcast. She's written a wonderful series of books on mental strength, including her most recent book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Couples Don't Do, which comes out on December 26th. And her TED Talk, The Secret of Becoming Mentally Strong, has been viewed more than 23 million times, which is just a crazy number, and it makes it one of their most popular ones ever. So Amy, thanks for joining me today. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing wonderful, and I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, we're so glad to have you. It's so fun. You were saying before uh, before we got going that you'd listened to the show before, which I was just totally tickled by. Yeah, for a long time. So I, uh, again honor to be here today. That's awesome. That's so cool. I would love to start by just like introducing people to you a little bit more and sharing a little bit more about you, including how you landed on this framework of mental strength as what you wanted to focus on. Sure. So my career started as a therapist and I thought, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to teach people all of these things I learned in college, things straight from the textbook. But one of the things I was taught as a clinical social worker was to build on people's strengths. When people come into your office point out what they're already doing well and tell them to do more of that. And I thought, that sounds amazing. Let's do that. But pretty early on in my career, I realized if I'm only focusing on what people are doing well and I'm not showing them that perhaps just one bad habit is counterproductive, I must be doing them some kind of a disservice because people want to work smarter, not just harder. And I'm one of those people as well. And then about a year into my work as a therapist, I lost my mom and it was sudden and unexpected. She had a brain aneurysm and it really made me think, yeah, in these moments that are really tough as I was going through grief, like the last thing I wanted was a long to-do list. Sometimes it was just don't do these things, Amy, and you'll be okay. It was the three-year anniversary of the day that my mom died. My 26-year-old husband had a heart attack and also passed away. And I just remember having that realization of I'm, I'm now a widow. I've lost my mom. I'm only 26. I thought like I had this bright, fun future ahead of me. And now what? And it took years to really dig myself out of this really dark place that I was in and figuring out like, what am I going to do now? At a time when all of my friends were getting married and having kids, I'm a widow. Like, how do you, I don't know. I didn't even know how to process yeah. that or what to do. But I was down to one income and from a financial standpoint, I had to work. So I had to figure out how do I now be a therapist with a broken heart and help other people deal with their problems. One of the things I started doing to earn a little extra income because I wanted I didn't want to move was I started writing articles as a side hustle because I could write a couple articles in the evenings around the weekends to earn some extra money. And a few years later, my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer. That was the moment for me where I thought, like, this isn't fair. (laughs) I've just spent the last few years grieving. I don't want to lose somebody else. But it was then that I wrote an article called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. I thought it was just a letter to myself, and I found it helpful. And so after a few days, I published it online for a whopping $15. 
thinking, you know, maybe somebody else will read it. Maybe it'll be helpful. But 50 million people read the article. And that's why now, 10 years later, I get to, to be on your show and talk to people like you about mental strength because it struck a nerve and resonated with enough people that I now got to write a series of books as well. It's kind of a crazy story. In a lot it of is, ways, isn't it? like a lot, of, yeah, like a lot of wild twists and turns in there. And I mean, suffuse in the first part of it is just a lot of challenge. I mean, really, really intense emotional moments for you, challenges for other people, the the very real experience of loss in your life. And it's interesting in writing about like mental strength or focusing on it. Was there anything that you were doing during that period of time when you were really going through it? that you think helped you get to a place where you could eventually sit down and and write this letter to yourself? You know, I was an incredibly anxious kid and spent my whole life like the really shy, quiet person. And I think I held on to a lot of beliefs that I was just too shy, too quiet, had too much anxiety to do tough things. Hmm. And then I hit my 20s and it was like all these tough things happened. And and I didn't have a choice. And I suddenly realized like, okay, I can do harder things than I give myself credit for. And the reason that number one was on the list is don't feel sorry for yourself is because I had those moments where I was just like, this isn't fair. Like, what are the yeah. statistical chances that I would lose my 26 year old husband on the exact three year anniversary of the day I lost my mom? Like, I just felt like it was some cruel joke for a while. And I just remember thinking like, I don't wanna do this as if I had a choice. And really just wanted to dig in my heels, but I was motivated and I was a foster parent too. My husband and I had become foster parents pretty early on. And wow. I remember having a child who had lost both of her parents to different substance abuse issues and, and both of them had passed away. And I had this moment where I thought, all right, I'm, I'm 23 and I lost my mom. And here's this 13 year old girl who's already lost both of her parents. And while it's usually not helpful to compare ourselves to other people's lives, it also there was part of that that put it in perspective for me that mm. said, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> things could be worse. And and uh, even though things are rough, like I can also be grateful that I had my mom for 23 years and I can be grateful for the experiences I had. And, and although I could also let this keep me stuck in a dark place for the rest of my life, I could also use this as an opportunity to say I was in a dark place backed up against a wall. But here was how here's my comeback. Here's how I figured out what I wanted to do in life. And it was that's why I put number one on the list. Don't feel sorry for yourself because I could have been so tempted to to just stay stuck there, I think. And I didn't I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to become bitter. I saw what happened to people when something bad happened and they never really worked through the pain. They just kind of shoved it down mm-hmm. and they would come into my therapy office 20 years later and they were just angry and bitter and resentful. And I didn't want to be like that. So I thought, how do I work through this so I can heal and hopefully still be a, an OK person on the other side of this? It's so funny how sometimes we like sit down to do these recordings and we kind of have a plan for what we're going to talk about. And then we just start talking about something else and the conversation kind of takes over. And uh, But if you're okay continuing to talk about this a little bit, Amy, I, I find it so interesting what you said uh, just a second ago about not wanting to feel sorry for yourself. And that being like point number one, 13 things mentally strong people don't do. At the same time, there's a huge place for self-understanding, self-compassion, uh, giving yourself a break. You're going through this incredibly tough time. You're probably not going to be Captain High Performer, no, nor should you be in that moment in time. You know, priorities are elsewhere. And so these are these are different things, but they're in the same domain. And I think that for a lot of people, 
they they resist self-compassion sometimes because they're concerned about just being sorry for themselves. Oh, I'm glad that you said that because that that's certainly something that I see and something I struggled with too. Like, how do you be nice to yourself, but at the same time not make excuses? Yeah. So I yeah. didn't want to be like, you've had a rough decade. You don't need to push yourself to do anything hard. You deserve some time off. So it was really about figuring that out. Like strength for me in that time was about was about pushing myself to do hard things. And yes, I took breaks and I I certainly had no intentions of saying, hey, I'm going to write a best-selling book this year. Like it didn't even seem like it was possible. But self-compassion we know is really important. And that's a huge part of healing is just speaking to yourself with kindness, giving yourself grace and, and knowing that, yeah, you can take care of yourself. And sometimes that means pushing yourself to do something when you don't feel like it. And there are other moments where it means, all right, I'm going to cut myself some slack. If I don't want to go do that thing today, I don't have to go do it. Mm. And then there's like a piece of wisdom in there about knowing when do you push yourself to go do something, even though you don't feel like it? And when do you cut yourself some slack? There's not always a right or wrong answer. Sometimes it's a little bit of trial and error. Like, all right, I pushed myself to go out with friends last night, even though I was feeling down. But you know what? It made my mood a little better. But then there were other times I would push myself to do something and I was like, oh, I'm just miserable. I shouldn't be here. But then on the other hand, I'd be like, yeah, but if I'm sitting at home on the couch, I'm probably going to be kind of miserable too. So then how do you, how do you find that balance? And I wanted, I wanted to make sure that I did go through the painful stuff, like let myself be sad because we know that being sad lets you honor something that you've lost. And I just had this huge upheaval in my life and I needed to honor that. But what I didn't want to do was start thinking my life is worse than anybody else's and woe is me and there's nothing sure. I can do to yeah. make the world better or nothing I could do to make my life better. That's when I think I was in danger of crossing over the self-pity line where I started to become helpless, hopeless and assume that I was doomed from here on out. Like, you know, there's only bad luck in my life and I'm expecting more bad things to happen. Totally, totally. Which which you like easily could have gone to, right? For starters. Right. And and also it sounds like you were just trying to avoid spiraling. Yes. To kind of put a word on it. Like you were trying to avoid getting down that rabbit hole that just doesn't have a bottom. Exactly. Because if I had decided like, all right, there's, I'm only going to have bad luck, horrible things are going to happen. I wouldn't have gone out and made good things happen. And if I didn't yeah. do that, then yes, tons of bad things do happen and that's life. And I've had other bad things happen, as so has everybody else, that over the course of a decade, some bad things will happen. But I didn't want to just focus on the bad, too. I wanted to recognize that even in the midst of everything I went through, there were some amazing things that happened. I had friends and family who showed me incredible kindness. There were strangers that heard my story and were really, really nice to me. And I thought, you know, there are still good things going on at the same time as the while I'm in all of this pain. And I didn't want to just focus on all the bad. So that's kind of itself a manifestation of mental strength, right? Being able yeah. to go through hard things, experience them fully, not have them totally overwhelm you, and being able to turn toward what's possible next, right? For some people, that's going to be a, a feeling that's suffused with a lot of positive emotion, and that kind of gung-ho attitude sort of carries them through that moment in time. For other people, maybe it doesn't have that positive emotion, but they're just like, you know what, I'm going to stick this out and keep going and do what I can here. And I'm wondering if there are some other examples of what mental strength looks like to you, maybe particularly that were important during that moment in time. Yeah, well, I'll tell you the reason number two is number two on the list is because that was also something I was struggling with, which is not giving away my power. In that moment, it was so easy to be like, oh, you know, everybody 
is doing X, Y, or Z, or this has ruined everything about my life. And I could really give other people power over how I felt and my situation power over the rest of my life. Hmm. And I wanted to take back that power and be like, okay, there's a lot I can't control, but there are some things I can, I do have control over. I can control if I go for a walk around the block today. I can control who I talk to or how often I talk to my friends or family or I can control my breathing in a moment where it feels like mm-hmm. there's nothing you can control. You can usually control your breathing. And taking back my power is just about reminding myself of that. I wasn't a victim of this horrible decade of my life, but instead, all right, bad things are happening, but here's what I'm going to do about it. And when I focused on that, again, I felt a lot better. It wasn't just like I was along for the ride. I wanted to be in the driver's seat of saying, okay, there are still some things I can do here. And Writing articles was one thing I could do to take back my power to say, all right, if I create some content online, then I don't have to move. I didn't want to move. So all those little things I could do. And when I work with people in my therapy office, it's often in the language that people use. So when somebody says, you know, my mother-in-law ruined my day, well, did she really ruin your day or did you let her ruin your day? I'm just mm-hmm. switching that. Or my boss makes me feel so bad about myself. Like, does your boss force you to feel bad about yourself or mm. you allow that to, to creep in and cause you to feel bad? So sometimes just changing the language from I have to do something or somebody steals my time or wastes my energy, just recognizing, no, it's up to me to decide what I'm going to do with, with my time, with my energy, my effort and empowers you to say I'm, I'm in the driver's seat. Yeah, I love that because it makes it a two-part process. Like your boss might really be an asshole and your mom might really have said something super unskillful to you, but that's a different thing from our response to it. And maybe even like getting a little bit more granular about it, maybe it's a three-part process. Maybe your boss said a, a shitty thing to you and you had an in the moment response to it that was a very understandable emotional response. And then from there, it's where you have a little bit more control and agency. Yes, exactly. So we can't always control like the first thoughts that pop into our head, but you can control what you then think about that. You can reframe it. You can focus on it. You can dwell on it. You could go home and just keep rehashing a bad conversation. Or you can say, all right, this happened. I said this and my boss did that. And here's how I'm going to choose to to make the rest of my day from here on out. Yeah. So this feels pretty CBT-ish to me, Amy. Is that a part of your training background? It is. Good catch. Yes. Yeah, yeah, very much so in terms of, you know, the whole what you think and you feel and how you behave and how they all interact. And early on in my career was definitely trained in CBT. And it certainly plays out throughout a lot of the conversations I have, as you astutely noticed. (laughs) So it's hard enough to apply these skills when we're just applying them inside of our own brain for ourselves, right? Like uh, you're describing a a really challenging moment in time, real loss, real grief, real big emotions that anyone would be feeling right then, right? And you went through this process of working through those emotions skillfully, identifying what really mattered to you, figuring out what to do next, problem solving around it, like all of this stuff, right? And then we try to do that in a relationship with another person and and the difficulty just goes up from there, right? And I got to imagine that when you're working with, with couples or partnerships of different kinds, One of the real problems is figuring out what the problem is, because just speaking personally inside of my relationship, sometimes me and my partner, Elizabeth, disagree on what we should be caring about in that moment. And in order to to do anything about a problem, you got to figure out what the problem is. So maybe we can just kind of start there in, in how you go through that process with people. 
Oh, you're absolutely right. So yeah. early on, I tell the story in my book when I, I was in Maine is where I started my therapy career. And in rural mm. Maine, you don't get to pick a specialty. Like I'll speak to therapists <laughs> in, in New York and they're like, I see 14 year olds with OCD. And I'm like, oh, yeah. that's nice. And in Maine, there were <laughs> in this very rural community I was in, there was two therapists, myself or my sister. Yeah. So you yeah. were stuck with one of us, basically. So whether you, you were... You see who walks in the door. Yeah, Pretty totally. much. Whether you're four yeah. or you're 84, like you're kind of stuck with one, one of us unless you drive a very long way. And so I didn't really want to see couples because the first couple that came in my office, I was like, kind of like a referee. Like, am I supposed to pick sides or these two people arguing about something? And as you said, often the presenting problem is not the problem. People come in and mm. they say you know, my, my husband's a slob or my wife nags too much. But like, that's not often not the problem. It's just what they're presenting. The deeper issue is something much different, which might be that they, one of them was offended by something 10 years ago and they never addressed it. Or somebody has mm. some childhood trauma that they never addressed. Or what, somebody has a mental health issue. There's so many other things. And so when you do couples work, you have to figure out like what's going on behind the scenes or you look at who was motivated to come in and why were they motivated and like, what's their motivation? And a lot of times it's, they drag their partner in because they want their partner to change, but they don't want to do anything differently. Or somebody will be like, we'd have a great relationship if only, and it's something that their partner is mm. doing that's keeping them stuck. So it's really about figuring that out, like what's really going on here behind the scenes. And if they're coming in with a symptom, what's the actual problem that we can work on in therapy? A lot of the time, the frustration that you have about your partner, whatever's going on in that moment, is driven by like 10,000 other things that have nothing to do with the fact that they didn't do the dishes. Right. To your point. It's like this huge stew of other stuff ranging from, you know, practical, I didn't get enough sleep last night stuff, all the way up to I'm... I'm grappling with the reality that maybe this is the person I'm going to spend the rest of my life with, and I don't know how I feel about that. Like, there's a whole spectrum of stuff that walks into the room. And I'm wondering how you help people kind of like part that out, whether it's through like more of an interoceptive, figuring out what's true to them kind of process, or a getting them to say the uncomfortable thing that they just have to say process, uh, just what that actually looks like. So sometimes we'll take a look at a specific emotion, and it might be anger. And maybe you say, mm. yeah, I'm frustrated because my partner's not doing the dishes. So then we'll talk about like, what are some other times that you experience that frustration? Oh, that's cool. And yeah. and we know that like a lot of times, you know how when you get really angry at somebody about what's going on right in front of you, but suddenly you can remember 20 other times that they've hurt your feelings, offended you, or you're angry. And part of that is because our our brain stores all the angry messages. It's like a file and it gets stored in the same department. So then when you open up the file drawer, all of the files are there for your viewing. Right at the tip of your tongue because you can remember mm. the other 17 times you were really angry as well. So then we bring those up in an argument of like, yeah, but two weeks ago, here's what else you did. And that's when we get into the really non-productive conversation. So sometimes though, it's about figuring that out. Like, have there been, are there some unhealed wounds we haven't addressed? And, and the Thing that's going on on the surface is really just a, a symptom of this other thing that happened. And it might be that five years ago, you didn't agree with moving to the another city, but you moved begrudgingly, but you kind of pretended like you didn't mind on the surface. And really, there's some resentment there. And that's why you're getting in the argument over the dishes. Or sometimes it is a communication issue where somebody can't say, hey, can you help me with this? Instead, they're like, I have so much to do today. Kind of hoping the other person picks up on the hint. 
And often mm-hmm. that goes back to like a mm-hmm. fear of being rejected or I'm afraid to ask you or I'm afraid to admit that I need help. So I'm just going to kind of hint or I'm going to complain. I'm going to present everything as a complaint in hopes that you'll respond. Most of us don't respond well to complaints. So sometimes it's just about looking at that, like what's really the underlying issue? Well, maybe it's my fear of asking for help. So therefore I complain constantly. You think I'm a negative person. I think you're lazy because you don't ever swoop in and save me when I'm complaining. Oh, okay. Well, we can work on this underlying issue. So sometimes it's about assessing people's communication patterns and then figuring out like, when else have you felt this emotion? Are those kinds of communication issues, particularly that either A, not quite saying what we what we need to say, or B, sort of substituting our actual communication with all of these other communications that feel a little bit safer in the moment, maybe? Or they're less emotionally risky? Is that like one of the biggest issues that comes up consistently in the office for you? It is. So often mm. it's easier to complain about the dishes than to explain yeah. that I have a a deeper rooted fear of our financial situation that goes back 10 years, right? Understandably, yeah. (laughs) Right. And we don't want to bring those things up because we're like, I don't want to rock the boat or things are a little, uh, you know, things are okay-ish in our relationship. And if I bring up something like that, we might have this huge knockdown blowout fight or Mm. people will say, well, that was in the past. We can't fix it. So I'm just not going to bring it up that that thing was hurtful. And then when it comes to our communication, we often find some symbolic meaning in things and we make an assumption and then we draw a conclusion. So if, if my partner's 10 minutes late, I might be like, oh man, they're always late. They never do anything that I ask them to. It's because they don't care about me. They don't even really like, like me that much, or they're just so disrespectful all the time. They don't love me. Well, suddenly them being 10 minutes late, I've drawn the conclusion that they, they don't like me. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't do that when we're dating somebody. When you're first like in love with somebody, we assume goodwill. You think, oh, they're 10 minutes late. It had to have been traffic. And we cut them some slack. We're much less likely to do that after 20 years of being with somebody. We're much more likely to personalize things and to think that there is some symbolic meaning behind it. And we draw these conclusions. But we don't talk about those conclusions. We don't say, hey, I feel like you don't actually like me. Instead, we yell at them for being 10 minutes late. So Yes, there are often some deeper things that are going on underneath the communication on the surface that's easier to say out loud. Is there a key skill or a key trait that you've seen differentiate the couples who tend to get better versus the couples that don't? A big thing is is talking about those bigger things. Being willing to talk about those things, yeah. Right, because a lot of couples will think as long as we don't fight, we're okay. Like there's absolutely yeah, no, yeah. no research that shows that, you know, more arguments equals definite divorce. Like that's not really the case. In fact, it's the couples who don't communicate about the hard stuff that are more likely to get a divorce down the road or to not stay together because they aren't addressing those deeper things. And then they end up being distracted by other things or other people. And, and the relationship can kind of crumble from there. So I think that's important for couples to know, like boredom kills more relationships than uh, than high conflict. Boredom kills more relationships than high conflict. I, that's a great line. And so, you know, after 20 years of being together, they're like, ah, oh, you know, and they don't fight, but they also don't do exciting things together. They reserve <laughs> the excitement for their girls weekend or for the time with the guy. Then they go do fun things. But together as a couple, they just get kind of stuck in a rut. Wow. That's a great line. I'm going to remember that Amy, boredom kills more relationships than conflict. <laughs> and uh, you're you're kind of alluding to research that's been done by the Gottman Institute and other 
places as well. I'm just familiar with the Gottman research that basically suggests that conflict is inevitable in relationships unless you're deliberately avoiding conflict, which is its own problem. And so the question isn't so much like, is there conflict? It's more, how is that conflict handled when it comes up? And particularly, how are we able to repair from that conflict when it pops up? So repair is this key skill that comes up in relationships because we're we're all going to have these bumps and bruises and we need to be able to find something resembling a smooth landing from them. That's it exactly, that it's okay yeah. to disagree and to know which problems to address and which ones not to. So in the book, I talk about not ignoring problems. We need to bring up problems, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that you have to bring up every problem. If you leave your socks in the middle of the floor and your partner is really upset about it every single time, like you're just going to get caught in the same fight over and over again. Or if you have different like religions or different political views, arguing about them for 20 years is not going to change anybody's opinion. Mm-hmm. But on the same you know, on the same token, you also do need to discuss the deeper issues of, you know, you said something the other day that hurt my feelings. Let's talk about it. Or I didn't like that thing that you did. And here's why. But when we can talk about those things in a productive manner, and as you say, repair, so that once we do offend each other, we hurt each other's feelings, which you will when you're with somebody for years, you will hurt their feelings, you'll let them down, you'll upset them, and they'll do the same things to you. But in a healthy relationship, you can visit those things and repair the relationship. One of the most difficult things for people to say sometimes is just, I'm sorry. You know, I messed up or not even that much tone on it, just I'm sorry, period, can be really, really hard. I I was having an interaction, this kind of top of mind, because I had an interaction with a guy that I I see socially occasionally. He was an older guy. And I think that he's in his 60s or something like that, little brusque as a personal style. And he uh, made some little kind of physical mistake. He like spilled a glass of water or something and it knocked over and, and spilled onto this other guy that we were kind of sitting with. And the mental gymnastics that this man went through to not just say, oh, I'm sorry, were like incredible to watch in the moment as everybody else at the table is like, you know, I'll, I'll make up a name, you know, Bill, you should probably say that you're sorry to this guy. And he, he just he was so uncomfortable with just that phrase and like any of the vulnerability that was attached to it. And for starters, I'm wondering, like, do you see that? And how do you help people work with that? Like that resistance to just being like, yeah, my bad. Right. Yeah, that's a fascinating one. And then the when people sometimes do apologize, it's not I apologize for my behavior. It was I apologize if you feel bad or if sure. you took that yeah. the wrong way. And it's almost like some people are just afraid if I apologize, it, it means I messed up. And if I messed up, it means I'm bad or I'm that, a bad person. Yeah. Right. And it kind of goes back to that. But for people to know, yeah, we all mess up. That's OK. And taking responsibility I don't know anybody who says like that person apologized and I don't like them now. Like it's not the apology that ever lowers our opinion of somebody. When somebody genuinely says like, okay, I messed up and here's why. And we offer an explanation, but not an excuse, but an explanation perhaps of of why we messed up. It goes a long way. But if we were to use your glass of water example, sometimes in couples, it's not, I'm sorry, I spilled the water. It's you're stupid because you left the water on the edge of the table and made me spill it. Right. Yeah. So we get into that of like, okay, this is what I could have done differently. Maybe this is what you could do differently. And when we can do that, have that conversation, things get much more productive. But so often I see it happen that way of you shouldn't have done that because you made me do, you made me mess up. This couple walks into your office. They sit down, you're asking them, hey guys, why are you here? And they almost immediately move into what you're describing. 
Bill knocked the water over the other day. Well, Amy, I only knocked it over because you put it at the edge of the whatever. And then they're off to the races. And now yeah. we're now we're in it. You know, now we're in the cycles. The tennis match is going on. The ball's going back and forth over the net. You feel like you should have an umpire shirt on. How, how do you walk people through that process, slow them down and get them to a place where they can actually like have some kind of a repair? Like, what does that typically look like? So if there is a typical version of it. Right. We often start with setting some rules for the therapy office because things can get out of hand quickly when people want to explain their side of the story. They want to really make sure I hear them. So voices get raised, names get called. The good part of that is in the moment, I get to see pretty quickly what somebody's communication patterns look like. Yeah, I can say like, oh, okay, I see why we get in the fight over the spilt water at home because... <laughs> You know, voices get raised and somebody has a lot of difficulty regulating their emotions and names get called. So we usually start there with like, let's set some rules for communicating. And then often the second step is like, let's work on listening. If you can listen to your partner and it's not just inter not interrupting them, but really listening, let's reflect back what you heard before you jump in and say something else. 90% of the time, that's the work right there. When somebody can say, all right, so you feel like I put the glass of water on the edge of the table. Did I understand it right? Yes, you put the glass on the edge of the table. Okay, so when I put the glass on the edge, you know, and when they have that conversation, it goes a long way. And then yeah. the other person gets less defensive. And the person who keeps saying, you know, this is your fault when you say, okay, so you think it's my fault. And you can do it without sarcasm, but you think it's my fault that the water spilled because I left it too close to the edge of the table. And then they're like, oh, yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying. It's not completely your fault. And often that makes a huge difference. So we work on how do you now do that at home? How do you listen to one another? Validate somebody's feelings instead of saying you shouldn't feel that way or you shouldn't get it so upset. Yeah, if you're upset, like I, you're upset with me because I did X, Y, or Z. Let's talk about that. And when couples can really hear each other, it goes a long way toward then being able to say before you jump into problem solving or before you try to convince the other person that they're wrong, just listening to each other's viewpoints can usually be something that has a snowball effect. Once couples are comfortable doing that, they can have much more productive conversations. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. 
And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years, and the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. So we've already identified a couple of things that, that tend to be problems for people, tend to be like these key points of difficulty, right? So we've got communication issues of different kinds, difficulties around repair and around responsibility taking that sometimes happens in repair where you have to say, okay, my bad at some point. And we've talked about identifying like what the actual issue is when you're walking into the room, the presenting problem, the different things that can kind of go into the stew of frustration or irritation with your partner. And then you had the the great line about boredom versus conflict and what tends to uh, cause more long-term problems for people in relationship. Another thing that can be a real issue is a feeling that I would imagine is pretty uh pretty common in people who listen to a podcast like ours, the feeling that they're really interested in growing or addressing some underlying issue or solving some problem in the partnership, and their partner just kind of isn't. Or at least they feel like their partner just kind of isn't. That's a really common one. It's a tricky one for people to deal with. And I'm wondering how you help people with that feeling. Yeah, that is a common one where people will say, you know, if if my partner wasn't so lazy, I'd be happy. Or we need mm. to stop arguing all, all the time, but yet I can't make my partner agree with me or yeah, those sorts of things. And so we often then work on, that's fine. You can make a huge change in a relationship if just one person goes to therapy, if just one person makes a change. And relationships are like a dance. And if you try to drag your partner out on the dance floor and force them to dance, I guarantee it's not going to go well. But if you change the steps that you take and your dance steps change, the other person kind of has to change their steps too. So you don't want to force them out there and say, no, you have to do this because that's not going to work. But if you kind of invite them and they agree to, to do things a little bit differently, then, then you have some progress and you want to start where people are. So if your partner says, you know, I don't, I don't think that we need to work on this issue, but I don't like that we argue about it all the time. Well, that's a good place to start. Or yeah, I don't, I don't think I need to do the dishes more often. I think you need to nag me less. Okay, then let's, let's go there. But often if we change our own behavior, if you model the things you want to see, so often we get stuck in the idea of, I'm not going to show you respect until, until you show me some, or I'm not going to act polite until you show me some kindness first. But 
if you just change your behavior, often it changes the entire dynamic of the relationship. Mm. And instead of pointing out what you don't like with your partner, like, hey, you slob, you left your shoes in the middle of the floor again. You can also point out the things that they're doing well, like, gosh, I really appreciate that you picked up your dish and put it in the sink. Thank you so much. Enough that you want to act like their parent or that you don't want to come across as being sarcastic. But when you can be genuinely grateful for the, the behaviors that you want to see more of, it goes a long way. And there's research that will show, too, we tend to, when we think our partner needs to change, we get caught up in only noticing the negative things. And we're much less likely to notice the positive things that they're doing. If I draw the conclusion that my partner is lazy, I will find 101 things that they did that day that reinforce that belief. If, however, my belief were, you know, they work really hard at their job. So when they come home, they don't have a lot of energy, but they're still a really good partner or still a really good person. I could find 101 reasons that day that would validate, yeah, they're still a good, a good hardworking person. So sometimes it's about just pointing out to yourself some of the opposites so that you see the positive in the relationship. When you feel better about the relationship, you interact a little differently. And that often drives change in the other person, too. One of the things that I've noticed you doing through this conversation, Amy, is that you are very quick to look at like the thought structure that a person has about an issue. Just how you had that little flip there between I have a lazy partner and, well, actually, no, I have a partner that expends a lot of effort, but when they get home, they're low energy because they've expended all of that effort. What do you think helps people learn how to do that? Because clearly it's a valuable ability. We want to be able to intervene with our thoughts. And it feels like it just becomes kind of second nature that you can do that, that you can like look to a lower level with it. But I have to imagine that wasn't something that you were just like born with. So how did you kind of develop that ability? Yeah, well, like you said, I definitely wasn't born with it, worked on it and continue to work on it in my own life and held up so many self-limiting beliefs about myself. Like, I'm mm-hmm. just too shy to have anything interesting to say. Yeah. I now have a podcast and I give a TEDx talk that was seen by 23 million people. So I have evidence <laughs> that perhaps some of my beliefs weren't Does accurate. Help. Does help. You know, and and had those things never happened, like, I don't I don't know, I'd probably still think I'm I'm too shy, but just looking at the evidence from the contrary or asking yourself the, the popular question, like, what would I say to my friend right now? What's another mm. way to look at this situation? I truly believe that our thoughts often become self-fulfilling prophecies. If I believe that my partner is a jerk, I'm going to treat them as if they're a jerk and they're going to treat me poorly back. And pretty soon I'm going to be more and more convinced that this person is a horrible human being because of our interactions are going to go south. So I think sometimes asking yourself, like, what's evidence to the contrary? They're not a jerk all the time. And then how would I be acting if my partner were Mm. a wonderful human being? How would I act if I felt confident? What would I be doing right now if I felt mentally stronger? And sometimes changing our behavior first makes a difference. But also just reframing those thoughts that aren't helpful. You know, I realized quickly on, like, because I grew up like an incredibly anxious human being, If somebody had told me when I was 10, like, there's a one in a million chance you'll develop this rare disease, I'd be like, oh, I guarantee I'm that one person, right? But if somebody (laughs) said there's a one in a million shot, you're going to win the lottery, I'd be like, I'm not even going to check my ticket because I'll never win. But just in recognizing (laughs) that, that my thought patterns are like that, and especially now that I've been through certain things, like if somebody in my life says, like, I have a headache, my first thought is like, oh, instant death, this person's about to drop dead. But I can remind myself that, yeah, you know, I have anxiety that still runs in the background and the things I've been through 
tell me this, but it's not true, that our brains lie to us all the time. It exaggerates certain things. It tricks us into believing certain things. And that's kind of freeing to know you don't have to believe most of the things you think. It's a little scary because you think, well, gosh, all of these things that run through my head aren't true. But on the other hand, and if you and I went through the same day, we might have completely different versions of events. Not that I'm lying or that you're lying. It's just our experiences were different. If I said to you, like, somebody asked us, how was your day? And you and I had just gotten, we went to the grocery store together. We come out and somebody says, how was your trip to the store? I might be like, oh, wonderful. There's hardly anybody in there. You, on the other hand, might be like, oh, it was so crowded. There, there was a million people in there. And might be the exact same experience. We just have different perceptions. So in realizing yeah. that, that there's so many different versions so many different ways to tell the same story and that my the first version that pops into my head isn't necessarily the truth I can retell it in a way that that is more helpful as well yeah yeah because there are so many different kinds of thoughts that we can have and so you you can't teach somebody how to intervene specifically with every single different thought that they have because there are so many different kinds of thoughts right but what you can do is you can maybe teach people a general framework for interacting with their mind and for me, there are two things that, two little steps that have been super, super helpful. And I'm wondering what your take is on them. The first one is just developing the basic ability to be a little tiny bit suspicious of my thoughts. And this is one of those things where like a gram or a half an ounce of it is how much you want, but you don't want, you know, too much more than that. You want to be able to trust yourself, but, you know, disbelieve them just the right amount, whatever that looks like for a person. But just have a little bit of space around your thoughts where you go, hmm. Maybe, maybe not. That itself for me, as somebody who believed like every thought that I had before the age of 18, was like a huge transformation. So that itself was huge. And then being able to go to the next step of asking, okay, what else might be true? Just that phrase, like what else might be true? What else could be true? Like has become just a total koan for me as I move through life. Because you have that little moment around the thought where you go, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe yes, maybe no. And then you go, okay, what else could be true? And then you start just mentalizing around it and going down the rabbit hole of being like, oh, it could be this, could be that. And then by the time you get to it, you've got 10 different thoughts in your head, but they're all your thoughts. So you believe them just as much as you believe a thought, right? And they're all possibilities. And it helps you lighten up kind of about all of them. I love that. I think that's incredibly wise to be able to say, because we often think like, if I think, oh, you know, the baseball team's going to lose tomorrow. Like, that's one possibility they might win. Who knows? Maybe it'll get rained out. There's a whole bunch of different possibilities, <laughs> but we often believe those thoughts. So to just open up that crack of maybe, maybe it's not a hundred percent accurate. I mean, you look at the research about our like assessments and our judgments. I mean, there's this one study where they have people negotiate and after they're done, they're say, they ask them like, were you a pushover or were you a jerk in this negotiation? And then they ask the partner to assess them too. And like everybody who says I was a jerk, the other person says, oh, they were kind of a pushover. And you think, even when we're negotiating something, like our perception of, of how we did or how we're perceived, it's all an opinion. But in our heads, we often get confused between opinion and fact. And we often think that our judgments are facts too. If you and I saw a movie and we walk out of the movie and I say, that was a terrible movie, you might have loved it. So instead of saying to myself, that's a terrible movie, a better idea is, you know, it wasn't for me. I didn't mm, like mm -hmm. it, not that that was bad, but often in our heads, we come to these conclusions and then we stick to them rather than recognizing like that's one opinion, not necessarily a, an absolute fact. 
So I've got a, a question for you about something that comes up in relationships a lot, particularly in situations like we were talking about a second ago, where one of the partners kind of feels like they're the person carrying the water for the couple. They want to do the effort, they want to solve the problems, and they're just kind of dragging there in the classic heteronormative structure. They're kind of dragging their husband to therapy, you know. Inside of that sort of a a context, sometimes people will try to go to kind of a tit-for-tat place for things. I'll do this if you do that. Some people are kind of pro-tit-for-tat. Some people are kind of anti-tit-for-tat. And I'm wondering what your take on that is as a structure. So, you know, in any relationship, obviously, there's going to be give and take and compromise yeah. and figuring things out. But what you don't want to do is get into the scorekeeping because there's seasons mm. of our life where we're not going to be able to give as much. I work with a lot of people who will be like, you know, I have an elderly parent that I have to take care of. My energy just isn't into our household right now. I need my partner to step it up a little bit in this season of my life, whether it's just a couple of weeks, a couple of months, might be a couple of years. But in knowing that and then we make these negotiations, somebody probably works more hours than the other one. So then what does that mean? Does the other person expect it to step up more around the house? Maybe, maybe not. But for couples to to have those conversations of I'm going to take care of the bills, you take care of the whatever duties or mm. But they're often like not discussed. We don't negotiate them. We don't say when we're doing too much or, hey, I need some help from you. We also don't do the reverse when we're like, you know, right now my job is requiring so much from me. I don't have a lot of mental energy left over to worry about the household responsibilities. What should we do about that? And then to make sure that we aren't keeping score so that three years down the road, we're not like, well, remember that six months when I did everything and you did nothing? that doesn't get us anywhere. But to know that, again, that's what separates our romantic relationships from a lot of our other relationships in life is we entered into an agreement that basically says we're going to work together, but nobody ever said we're going to work together 50-50 on everything. It's going to shift as time changes and the different departments where maybe you do 80 and the other person does 20, but there may be other departments of the relationship where they do more and you do less. And that's just the way it is. Yeah, with that scorekeeping part of it, I... That is a piece of advice that people give a lot, is to be careful about scorekeeping, be careful about, uh, you know, I did an hour of this, so you have to do an hour of that, that kind of thing. At the same time, I can imagine somebody listening to this who who's, who's nodding along and going, all right, okay, I get it, but man, it just feels kind of unfair. And I'm sure that that's come up in your office, and there are people who have been like, there are real effort imbalances inside of this relationship and I need, uh, you know, Mary to just show up a little bit more in these various ways. Uh, how do you help people work through that? So sometimes it's about getting concrete. Like, what is it that you need that you aren't getting? Yeah, yeah, and totally. Maybe I get home from work and I just want to vent about my day. But my partner is like, you know, I had a really bad day, too. I can't listen to you right now. So then we say, well, if, if your partner is not meeting that emotional need, might it be OK if you called your mom, your sister, your cousin? How else can you get some of those needs met? Obviously, your romantic partner needs to be providing for some of your needs. But in figuring that out, when is it that we can meet our own needs? And something I see often in people that end up having these discussions of I do way more 
Well, sometimes they're doing things that their partner didn't necessarily ask for. Yeah, they're expending a lot of effort in those places. Totally, totally. Right? So somebody might be like, my gosh, I spend all day Sundays cooking you these extravagant meals and you eat them in three seconds and you never even say thank you. I don't really care that much. Yeah, yeah, we could order a pizza. It would have been way easier. Or, you know, I do all of this for your... For your family so that we can invite your family over and the other person's like, I never asked you to do that. So I think sometimes it's getting on the same page about making sure that your contributions are, are really contributions. It's not just something you're doing and then feeling a little resentful about later. And then in knowing, yeah, sometimes that's a fact too. There may be things that you need that your partner doesn't give you. So then how do you meet your own needs? Not to go like full five-dimensional chess here or whatever, and I don't, I, I want to, A, I'm not a therapist, B, I want to avoid getting excessively psychoanalytic about this stuff for a whole bunch of different reasons, but it does seem like there's a little bit of a tendency, and I'm wondering what you've seen in this, where sometimes the gift that we give to other people is like what we actually kind of want to receive for ourselves. So I'm thinking of the example, like you were saying, with the person who's like slaving away on a Sunday, they're really preparing the beautiful meal for their partner. And the partner's just like, this is great. Like, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not trying to poo-poo it or anything. It's just not my vitamin C. It's not what I really want or need. It's cool that you did it, but it's not scratching my itch. But it would really scratch their itch if their partner did it for them. Is that something that you think comes up with people? Definitely. And and because we never have a lot of these discussions, then people are left kind of like, wait, what? Yeah, I, I don't yeah. understand. Or even if we took like money, somebody who works really hard, maybe they work a lot of overtime. They think, you know, I'm, I'm doing this for my partner because now we're financially secure. We can save for retirement. Meanwhile, their partner's like, you're never home. <laughs> mm. And they've never really had this discussion of like, you know, where am I putting my effort in the right places or how do we manage this? Or here's why I'm doing this. And sometimes people feel neglected or they feel like their partner doesn't understand them. So in just having these conversations can go a long way toward helping people understand, here's why I do this, or I feel like this is a great way to, to show my respect or my love for you. And like the five love languages, there's not a ton of scientific evidence behind them, but they're- Useful frameworks, yeah. Yeah, just as a way to say, you know, like when you are doing this, you maybe you're working all these extra hours and you feel like that's a loving thing to do, Your partner may not feel loved by that. They may feel neglected, in fact. So in just having more of those conversations, I think it's so important to talk about our emotional needs and how we think we're meeting our partner's needs and maybe what their perception of that is, too. And I wonder how much of that comes through just the the framework that we carry around of like argument is the way that we find out what's true, because the reality is that both of the people in that situation are totally right. Like the first person who wants to spend the time at the office and build the hours and save for retirement, they're totally right. The partner who says, hey, I want you to be at home more so that you can you know, support our relationship and we can nurture each other in these various ways, they're totally right. Like It's hard to square that circle because they're both totally right. So it becomes about going through a, a deeper process of conversation and negotiation about figuring out what the partnership cares about as opposed to the understandable expressions of need of the two individuals inside of it. You put that beautifully and that's it exactly that when couples can have those conversations and, you know, there's so much conversation out there about compromise, like, oh, you should just compromise. But you can't always just meet in the middle. Somebody's offered a job on the other side of the country. You can't move halfway. That doesn't make anybody happy. So how do you then negotiate these bigger things? Is it about how happy I am about the job or is it how much pain that would put my partner in or 
so many of these discussions that just never happen where people think, well, I want this, my partner doesn't, so we're stuck. But sometimes talking about what's really going on is super helpful. Yeah. And one way that this can kind of show up what we're describing, the person spending a lot of time at the office, the other person uh, wanting more nurturance at home is just a very, very common issue for people is balancing different desires for like closeness and distance inside of the relationship. One partner thinks that the other is very clingy. The other thinks that the other person is cold and distant. And the truth, you know, as typically is the case, probably lies somewhere in between. And then we can even have these cycles that I'm sure you've seen where one person's anxiety kind of triggers another person's avoidance, which then triggers the other person's anxiety and so on and so on. Are there any general principles in that that you think have just been really helpful for people that you've worked with? So it goes back to having those conversations about my need for autonomy and space versus mm. your need for us to be together. Yeah. And couples often have very different ideas about how much time to spend together or how much recreational activities should be together. Like, do you go golfing with your friends on the weekends or should you be spending that time with your partner? And how about during the day when you're apart? Should you be texting throughout the day or you only text once every once in a while or you only text when you really need something? And having those conversations about like, what is it that you need and what is it that I need and how do we try to find a way to compromise in a, in a healthy way? How do we meet each other's needs? How do we respect and honor that maybe I'm not getting 100% of what I need, neither are you, but that's okay. We're still working on this. Or if I'm texting my partner constantly and they don't reply, I could conclude they don't love me and they're ignoring me. Or I could decide that they need some space. They're working hard. There's some other issues going on. So again, I think it just goes back to having these conversations about what do I need and what are my expectations and what do you need and what are your expectations and, and how are we doing on those things? Are we spending all of our time together and one person feels smothered? Okay, if so, let's talk about that person's need for some freedom and some space. Maybe they have hobbies that don't include us and that's okay. We can let them do that. As long as I know you're going to come come back in the evening and we're going to spend some quality time together later, something like that. So talking about the different kinds of effort and balances that can appear in a relationship, one of the don'ts in your new book is mentally strong people don't become martyrs. I thought that one was really interesting. I, I don't think I'd quite heard somebody phrase it that way before. And I was wondering if you could explain what that looks like in practice. Yeah. So I guess if we went back to that, uh, I spent all day cooking dinner for you and mm, you mm -hmm. don't appreciate it. Often that's what happens in cases where somebody feels like a martyr. They feel like I have given absolutely everything to this relationship. I'm doing everything. And the other person's like, well, I didn't ask you to do all that. So, <laughs> And I see a lot of people who feel unworthy or guilty of accepting kindness from their partner. So their partner says like, oh, no, you can take the good seat. I'll take the one in the back. Or you can use the extra money we have to go on, on your little trip with your friends and I'll just stay home. And they're like, no, I'm, I never get anything. So therefore, I'm not going. And when people have that attitude of like, you know, I sacrifice everything for the relationship, they're not doing it with happiness and joy. They're doing it in a way where there's like a chip on their shoulder. And they're kind of bitter about how much they're giving and what they're not getting back. And that they're giving so much, so much that it hurts. And even when the partner offers to help, like, no, no, there's no sense or no need to help me now. So their partner might say, do you need some help with that? They're like, 
nope, too late for that now because they don't even want help. But mm-hmm. and it's so frustrating for the other person. He says, you know, I offer, but they say I don't do it right. So I can't pitch in. Or when I offer to help, they almost seem annoyed with me for offering. So I don't know what to do. And then sometimes it gets into a contest of like who's carrying the biggest load, who has the most burdens to to carry around. And then that's yeah. never helpful either. So I think it's important to be in a place where we, again, it goes back to knowing what you're giving to the relationship, making sure that what you're giving is helpful, and then accepting kindness from your partner when they offer it and knowing that you don't always have to accept the the worst of everything, that it's okay if they offer you something, you can accept it and that doesn't make you selfish. It just means that you're doing a healthy thing for yourself and your relationship. One of the most useful for me just breakthroughs that I've had around my own psychology and my own behavior was realizing the ways in which I was kind of controlling through giving or the ways in which like my acts of selflessness seeming often had a psychological motivation behind it for me. My classic example of this is that I tend to be the person in my friend group who does the planning. I put the event together. I get the people in the same place at the same time. I book the Airbnb. I do all of this stuff. And there was a a moment a little while ago where I started kind of getting frustrated about it because I was feeling like there was a real effort and balance in my friendships. Where it's like, I'm putting out all of this effort in all of these different ways. Why don't other people do this? And there were two reasons for it. The first is that I was the fastest to do it. So I didn't really give up other people an opportunity to step in in that way. And the second reason is if I was the one who did all of that, I always got to do exactly what I wanted to do. You know, it was always the way that I wanted it to be. It was on the dates that worked for me. It was in the location that worked for me. There was all all of these, uh, sometimes they call them secondary gains. In psychology, there were all of these secondary gains and comfort, uh, dealing with my own anxiety, just all of the stuff that were really great. Like these were the gifts that I was getting from the effort that I was putting in. And yet there was a part of me that was then kind of moving to resentment toward other people because they weren't showing up for me in this way that I had never requested that they show up for me. And so it becomes this big stew. And that's a place where like getting some separation from what's going on inside of your mind can be really helpful. Oh, that's an interesting example, because I think we probably have all done that before where we're yeah. you know, giving something and then at the same time wondering why people don't reciprocate. And sometimes it's because we don't we don't give them the chance and it does serve some sort of a need for us. Like you say, it gives us some control if we are the first one to step up. So that's a that's a great example. Yeah, totally. There are a lot of, of topics that come up when we have a conversation like this, dealing with couples and dealing with issues inside of relationships. Balancing needs for for closeness and distance, dealing with anxieties, communication issues. If somebody's listened to a lot of podcasts like this, they've probably heard different things like that come up over time. You've booked a fair amount of time sitting in a room with different couples and listening to them talk with each other. Are there any common issues that come up in relationships or come up in the room that you think people would be a little surprised to hear about? Let's see. Of course, there are the common ones about cheating. Sure. Mothers-in-law often are a hot topic of conversation. <laughs> I think one thing that maybe people don't really think about is is boundaries within their relationship. A lot of couples mm. don't ever really talk about the boundaries between each other. It's just something that they, from when they were a kid, like they got used to certain things. So you just, that's normal to you. 
and the way that we express emotions and not knowing that perhaps your emotional expressions are different from your partner's and it's not that you're right or that you're wrong. So a couple of examples might be if you have a 14-year-old who slams the door, is that okay or do they get in trouble for that? And some families like, no, slamming doors is normal. Other families would be like, listen, mister, you need to control your temper better. Uh, or even like a you have a, a football game on. Do you cheer loudly? Some families are like, you know, no, we're very restrained. Other families are like, you know, I'm screaming and standing on the couch. And couples who don't really have these conversations, like what's acceptable expression of emotion, often somebody thinks that they're right and their partner is wrong. And so they'll come to therapy saying, you know, how do I fix my partner? Because they either, they can't ever show happiness or they just kind of gloomy all the time or they, they, their anger is scary to me and couples don't really talk about those things. Or in the case of not talking about boundaries, social media has opened up so many strange opportunities and issues mm. like when your ex reaches out to you on Instagram like do you tell your partner do you not do you what kind of rules do you have about what you're looking at on the internet and there's a lot of conversations about boundaries these days but a lot of couples don't have those conversations with themselves what are your expectations or if I go to the bedroom and I shut the door like can you just walk in even though we're together or should you still knock or if my friend calls and says she's having a crisis Am I supposed to? And she says, don't tell anybody. Like, can you still tell your partner or yeah. does your partner respect that you don't tell that? So a lot of times couples, because they never have these conversations, it gets into some muddy water where they think, you know, my partner is unreasonable or they don't understand me. And that ends up often landing people in the therapy office. That's a great description of a really, really common issue that people have. And people can come to different rational conclusions around it that that work for them. Inside of of my relationship with my partner Elizabeth, what we've really landed on is a lot of freedom supporting a lot of love. And particularly for me in terms of she has a, has a beautiful line about it like loving somebody with an open hand. But other partnerships, you know, there's a they're the kind of partnership where they it's really important to them that they have their partner's password to their phone or that they keep the door a little bit open you know, or whatever it is. So like there are different right answers here. And I think that having some like openness to different possible right answers is a really important part of this whole thing. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because what's right for one couple may not be right for somebody else and knowing what are you comfortable with and our childhood and our life experiences and the relationships that were modeled for us all go mm -hmm. into play and mm -hmm. in learning that maybe what you thought about relationships maybe isn't 100% on board with what you want your current relationship to look like or just because your parents did it this way doesn't mean you have to do it the exact same way and knowing what your quirks are versus what your partner's quirks are and then figuring those things out it can be a beautiful journey when we do it in a way that that we're kind of open and curious about oh like when i say this you assume this or when i want to do this thing and you don't like here's how we work through that you can learn so much about yourself about your partner and growing together in a relationship if you're open to learning rather than assuming that either you're right or your partner's wrong or vice versa and just in knowing that a lot of different ways to do the same thing. I think what we've kind of been talking about throughout this conversation is just a sort of psychological flexibility, like the ability to view a situation different ways, the ability to not get stuck in one interpretation of your own thoughts, being able to interpret your partner's behavior in, in multiple different ways. Being able to look at your own actions and go, wait a second, maybe I was motivated by this thing I didn't really realize I was motivated by, whatever it is. And that's 
just a key skill that I think like drives a lot of happiness in life. If you're able to get a little bit more flexible about your thoughts and feelings, you're able to become happier over time. And one of the things that I really like about your work in general and this this recent book in particular is that you go out of your way to have a lot of mental exercises in it. And I'm not sure if you have a specific mental exercise for developing psychological flexibility, but I'm wondering how you've seen people go through the process of just getting better at that over time. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. So an exercise that I started out doing mostly with just kids, and I've expanded mm-hmm. it to adults because it works so well, is we talk about the steps to problem solving. And steps is an acronym for say what the problem is, think of solutions, evaluate what's good and bad, pick one and see if it see if it works. Oh, I love that. So basically, I'd give them I'd give them a task that might be like, I want you to move this little stuffed animal from one side of my office to the other, but you can't use your hands. And kids would be like, no problem. And they, so we, but before they were allowed to actually experiment, we would come up with five potential solutions. So they'd be like, oh, I'll use my elbows or I'll ask you to move it, or I'm going to use these two other objects to pick this thing up. And they come up with this whole list of really creative things. And then we say, okay, now that we've had this whole brainstorming list, you pick one and you see if it works. And then almost inevitably kids are like, no problem. When I would present that same exact problem to adults, they'd often be like, oh, you can't do that. Or I don't know. (laughs) And so for us to be able to really get into like the fact that every problem could have so many different solutions and there are so many ways to solve it. So and often we get in in the same pattern, like we think that the solution to whenever I'm upset, the solution is to meditate. Well, maybe, but sometimes the solution might be to to fix what's going on right in front of me, not just to fix the way I feel about the problem, but to solve the problem itself. So as we get more flexible, sometimes it's just about brainstorming potential solutions just to see that that one way that we think is going to solve the problem isn't the only one. And if we get a little more creative, we can get better at solving problems. And how do you get to be more creative? With practice. So in just Mm. practicing how you're going to solve everyday issues, like you are struggling to pay a bill, what, what can you do about it? Tons of things you can do. Or... You uh, have too much to do this weekend and not enough time to, to do everything on the list. How do you pick what to do? Or having a conflict with somebody. So many things. When we just get used to saying, all right, here's at least five different ways I could solve the problem. It goes a long way towards to reminding us that there are some pretty creative and easier solutions sometimes than we give ourselves credit for. I think that's a great place to end our conversation today on, Amy. Is, is there anything else you would like people to know about the work that you're doing or where they can find you? Sure. So my website is Amy Morin, LCSW, as in Licensed Clinical Social Worker.com. And on there, there's a link to my TEDx talk and all of my books, as well as my podcast, which is called Mentally Stronger with Therapist Amy Morin. This has been really great, Amy. I've totally loved having this conversation with you. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this today. Thank you for having me. This has been so much fun. I had a great time today talking with therapist Amy Morin about her new book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Couples Don't Do. And we started the conversation by talking a little bit about Amy's personal history. And I really appreciated how revealed she was and open she was in talking about an incredibly difficult time in her life. This is a person who has experienced a lot of intense personal loss. And I asked her what some of the strengths and skills were that she used during that period of time 
in order to make it through. And she talked about a lot of different things. She talked about receiving social support from different people, about being able to look at other people who had gone through really difficult things and getting a sense of perspective about them, seeing that they had made it through, so maybe I could make it through too. She talked a little bit, or really just kind of referred to focusing on the practical problems that were in front of her and spending some effort on those as opposed to getting wrapped up in the things that had happened in the past. But throughout all of those different responses, it felt like there was this running thread of not entering into a negative spiral around her thoughts and feelings, about finding ways to look at an objectively incredibly difficult situation and turn it just a little bit so it could be manageable in some way. So there were things that she actually could do rather than focusing on the things that she couldn't do anything about. And being able to apply those kinds of cognitive skills amidst just an incredibly challenging situation, for starters, shows a lot of skillfulness on her part and also really highlights how powerful these skills can be to get us through moments that are going to be the most difficult moments in a person's life. From there, we turn to applying these kinds of skills in our relationships, because it is hard enough to do it on our own, and then it just gets even harder when another person enters the picture. Because sometimes I struggle just as an individual to identify what really matters to me or what I need to be thinking about or working on in a situation, what uh, what my problems or issues are, as we talked about a little bit during the conversation. Man, doing that in a partnership where you've got two people trying to figure out what's going on and what the problems are, you can just create a lot of natural disagreement. So we began that part of the conversation by talking about how to get on the same page as your partner. And then alongside that, the general notion of a presenting problem in therapy. A lot of the time, people walk into the room with, of course, a reason why they're there, right? Like something brought them into the counseling room. But often what happens is that over the course of therapy, it's revealed that whatever brought them into the room wasn't the real problem. There was other stuff going on down below that was what the partnership really cared about or what the person really cared about. And sure, the dishes were an issue, but man, it was really about so much more. And from there, we talked about a lot of specifics. We talked about balancing different needs for closeness and distance inside of a relationship, dealing with situations where one person feels like they're doing all of the work and they think that their partner just isn't contributing the way that they need to. And then alongside that, situations where a person starts to effectively martyr themselves by over-efforting, often in all of these ways, that their partner doesn't actually care about. And there were two ideas that came up during the conversation that I'm really going to remember. The first one was when Amy said, boredom kills more relationships than conflict. For starters, just what a great line. And then attached to that, man, I think that, you know, it's complicated. Conflict can be really bad and bad conflict absolutely ends relationships and might end as many relationships as boredom does. But if we're talking about like normal range problem-solving argument-style conflict, I totally agree with her. Like so many relationships go to die on the altar of not rocking the boat. Everyone just keeps on not rocking the boat and not rocking the boat and not rocking the boat. And then we kind of wake up 10 years later and go, what the heck happened here? Because the reality is that, yeah, on any given day, disrupting the system is going to cause more conflict and more struggle for you, more problems 
then just kind of keep on letting things go the way that they're currently going. But sometimes you have to take on some short-term pain to get that long-term gain. And speaking personally, that hasn't always gone the way that I wanted it to in my life, right? Like there are some times where you upset the apple cart and the apple cart just stays upset. Things don't actually seem to improve that much or it leads to the end of a relationship. But with the long-term perspective that I have now looking back over my life, most of the time I wish that I had said something sooner rather than waiting and waiting and waiting to say it. Another thread that ran through the conversation was the importance of developing psychological flexibility, being able to look at a thought, a feeling, another person's behavior, a situation, and see it a whole bunch of different ways, and really cultivating that as a key skill that we can develop in our lives. It turns out that we don't actually have to believe every thought that we have. And it also turns out that there's often not like an objectively 1,000% accurate way to interpret a situation or a person's behavior. And I say this as somebody who is absolutely a recovering absolutist. And it is so helpful and so powerful to develop the learned skill of being able to look at your thoughts and feelings, get a little bit of separation from them, and then ask yourself what else might be true. So I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Amy Morin. Again, her book is 13 Things Mentally Strong Couples Don't Do, and it comes out on December 26th. If you've been enjoying the podcast for a while, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it wherever you're listening to it now on, maybe even tell a friend about it. That really helps us reach new people. And if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.